you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm your host Rob Kelly, and for this 4th of July weekend, what other book could I possibly talk about than Marvel Treasury Special, Captain America's Bicentennial Battles, which came out on June 15th, 1976, and to talk about this very interesting comic book, uh, I picked the two biggest Marvel fans I know, the hosts of the awesome Make Ours Marvel podcast, Michael Kaiser and John Wilson. Hi, guys. Hey, everybody. Hooray. <laughs> I'm so, I am so thrilled to have you here. I am a, for anybody who's listening who, who doesn't know, I am a super fan of Make Ours Marvel. I have listened to every second of every show you guys have put out. So I am really thrilled that you're here on my show. And for you Make Ours Marvel collectors... You have to listen to this show now to have the complete collection because I have both right. of them on. <laughs> oh, a spinoff edition. This is, yeah. like a, this is like a crisis tie-in where it's just the skies are red somewhere off in a corner. You have <laughs> to get it. You have to get it. So I'm really, really excited. I'm very thrilled that you would both do the show. So so welcome. Well, I'm glad that it's at least on the, um, the Human Torch and Submariner podcast network. That makes me happy. All right, so we're just going to keep going. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So, as I said, we're here to talk about Captain America's Bicentennial Battles. But before we get to the book in question, I need to ask you guys, like, what is your history with the Treasury comics as a format? You're both a little younger than me, so I imagine you probably didn't see a lot of them when you were little kids. But do you have them now? Did you buy them later on as collectors? Like, what's the deal? I go than I am, so you want you to go first. Well, I'm uh, 44, if I've never admitted that out loud before. So these were all kind of dying before I cared about comics, really. Um, my only real experience is the one we're going to talk about tonight, because I was a you know avid Captain America collector. So I remember seeing this like on the wall of a of my local comic shop and just being like, "Whoa, that thing's big, right?" <laughs> um, but I really don't remember the story all that well, so I don't know if I just didn't care about it at the time or what, but uh, yeah, rereading it for this show, I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. So I don't know why I have no memory of of what I did with this once I purchased it. But that's my that's my small Marvel Treasury history, really. Well, I have a theory as to why you didn't remember it the first time, but we'll get to that in a moment. So, John, what about you? At the time. Or the years afterwards, I had no concept of the Treasury Editions. I didn't even know they were a thing until I was an adult reader going back and finding back issues and digital stuff and everything else like that. Um, I knew Treasury Edition as a title of a comic before I knew it as a format. So um, I find them fascinating that not only do you have these oversized editions of comics, um, but you also have a lot of them, of course, contain reprints. Mm-hmm. And so you'll have you know comics that were, whatever, 8 by 11 
uh, size that are getting reprinted with a couple inches in either direction extra uh, in, in larger formats to really, you know, bring the art out. And there are some people that will swear by Kirby reprinted treasury size comics. Like that's the best way to experience his art because it just gets so much larger on the page. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I, I have since gone back. Uh, when my son was younger, I got him one of the early Spider-Man treasuries. Um, in the UK, they did some, um, some, some Justice League collections that I've gotten copies of. Uh, the Marvel superhero holiday grab bag. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I came across one of those and grabbed it up around the holiday season one year. So just I have, I have a few random ones. But, um, but yeah, this was... This is one I had to go find digitally because I, I don't actually have it. Yeah, this was not one you see a lot of. It part of it is it's hard, I think, for a lot of people to uh, index because it was a one-off. It's not a it's not an issue of Marvel Treasury Edition, which was their main series. It was just this one solo book. Why they did that, I have no idea. You would think they could just could have made it, you know, Marvel Treasury Edition number fourteen, caps bicentennial battles but if like you go to uh, mike's amazing world you have a little bit of a tough time finding just literally finding it luckily it was reprinted in a trade paperback featuring some other uh, captain america america themed stories and so you can sort of like root your way to it there but it's it is just like a weird little one-off for some reason um as a as a format like what do you think of it do you enjoy looking at them in this bigger size i mean a lot of collectors can't stand them because they can't be they can't. You can't put them anywhere unless you have like a big bookshelf. Does that bother either one of you? Well, I don't really have a collection all that much anymore, so no, it doesn't bother me. I think back in the day, I probably did just put it on a bookshelf along with you know trade paperbacks and stuff that you don't throw into a comic book box usually. And like John said, man, the art's bigger. Like original art is usually like eleven by seventeen, so this is still not big enough, really. Right. You know, you could go bigger right. even. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I like seeing it. I read it digitally for this show too, so I don't know if I'm uh, appreciating the scope of it since I can pretty much zoom in and out like a regular comic book. But I can imagine it was. It's probably awesome. There's a lot of cool double page sp- and uh, splash panels on this thing that are probably amazing at that size. Yeah, yeah I would but- probably put all of my treasuries are on bookshelves. Um, so that's just my default place to put them. I don't really think about putting them in boxes. Right, right, yeah. I mean, that's where I have them all. I have them all on a bookshelf, and there they sit. And I've, uh, you know, I love seeing them at this size. So yeah, that is those that appeal to me, and that's why I'm doing the show. So all right, well, cool. I said so. We're here to talk about Captain America's bicentennial battles, which of course came out at right at the time of the bicentennial, when America was celebrating its 200th anniversary. Uh, the sto- it, it, uh, hist- for historical purposes, this uh, book came out between Captain America numbers 201 and 202, which was right in the middle of when Jack Kirby was doing the book again. So, amazingly, he somehow a time in between cranking out several monthly books to now also crank out an 80-page special. I, I don't know how he managed to do that, but he did. Uh, you would, you know, in, in, in nowadays, if, if you put the regular artist of a, of a series on a special like this, they would be off the regular book for three months. So they had time to do this. But Jack Kirby just did it on top of it. Uh, it's just unreal how he was able to schedule himself because, I mean, this is, this is a huge achievement, and yet he was still cranking out the monthly cap book plus Black Panther plus probably Devil Dinosaur, what other things he was doing. It's just – it's unbelievable. He was a machine. He was a machine. It's unreal. So He's been sh- – 
he's been showing off since uh, FF number one, really. Right. <laughs> exactly, right, yeah. Uh, it's, it's just, it's crazy. So the story, uh, there's really no official title. Uh, Mike's Amazing World says the story is called Mr. Buddha, and that's as good a story as any. It's written and penciled by Jack Kirby, of course, inked by the team of Barry Windsor-Smith, Herb Trimpey, and John Romita, which is an intriguing combination of inkers uh, for Jack Kirby. So here's the plot. Again, with a lot of stuff of Jack Kirby, you can get into the plot, but you're really missing the, the, the flavor of it until you can just talk about it because it's so much more than just the events. But here, we're going to do the best we can. So responding to an invitation, Captain America visits Mr. Buddha on America's Bicentennial. <laughs> Mr. Buddha offers Cap an opportunity to view America with a universal eye, but Cap isn't interested and leaves. Unable to find his way out, Cap suddenly falls through a trap door and lands in Nazi Germany. Evading some guards, he discovers Bucky being tortured by Hitler and the Red Skull. Cap frees Bucky and the two escape, but Trap is, Cap is transported back to Mr. Buddha. Angry at first, Cap eventually thanks Mr. Buddha for allowing him to see Bucky again. Cap excuses himself to leave once again, and Mr. Buddha tells Cap to broaden his knowledge as he secretly places a psychic talisman in Cap's palm. Taking a taxi, Cap is transported to Philadelphia in the 1770s where he meets Benjamin Franklin, who designs the American flag after Cap's uniform. Feeling ripped off and disillusioned, Cap runs off but discovers he's now in New York during the Great Depression. After helping a newsboy against some gangsters, Cap discovers the talisman on his palm and is transported to the American Southwest. He's attacked there by Apaches, but gains the respect of their leader Geronimo with his wisdom. When they are attacked by the U.S. Cavalry, Cap desperately tries to stop the soldiers, but is trampled by their horses and finds himself in a collapsed mine shaft. He uses his shield to dig a way out, rescuing the miners. After an airborne skirmish in the Great War, Cap is transported back again to Mr. Buddha, who reminds Cap that history can't be made without turbulence. Cap is suddenly in a boxing match with John L. Sullivan, then freeing a slave from bounty hunters. After Cap departs, John Brown secures the unconscious slavers. Cap appears at Alamogordo to witness the first atomic bomb test, and he's terrified of its terrible power. He helps rescue people during the Great Chicago Fire, then talks with undersea research scientists. Mr. Buddha reminds Cap that experience teaches, not people, and sends the hero to the future. Witnessing a battle on the moon, Cap realizes that people will never stop fighting. Appearing in Hollywood, Cap becomes outraged at the hollow pomp and circumstance, feeling the proceedings are a parody of patriotism. Mr. Buddha congratulates Cap for questioning his surroundings and thinking for himself. Taking Cap to visit a student, Captain America realizes that what makes America great are people who don't complain and just get things done. As Mr. Buddha leaves, he reminds Cap that the truth is to be shared. Cap finds himself surrounded by children. He tells them that they can grow up to be anything they want. Well, okay. What? <laughs> I'm glad you had to do that. Yeah, uh, I, I have to thank several internet sites for, for help compiling that because this thing is dense as all get out. I mean, what were your initial impressions of this thing, guys? John, let me start with you. Like, What, what did you think of this story? Okay, so each little vignette is pretty great. There's, there's, there's some neat stuff going on. There's some neat messages. But the thing just goes from vignette to vignette to vignette without any sort of rhyme or reason. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the book feels like, oh, my gosh, will it ever end? Um, I liked what it was doing. I just felt like it was – I should have – I should have been an eight-year-old and, like, read this over a period of days rather than, you know, the space of a couple hours. I, I overall did enjoy the book. I just felt like it was it was a lot to read. It is a lot. It is a lot to read. Uh, Michael, what did you think? 
Um, yeah, I kind of, I actually went in this thinking, oh, this is just going to be like him bouncing around meeting Abe Lincoln or some, you know, shallow whatever. But they did a little deeper digging than I thought they would. And actually, most of it's not too painful even. Um, I'll agree with John that it does seem kind of random, like let's just pick really obvious history parts that people know. So, And a lot of it is just like depressing bad parts. Um, but then I think he even comments on that, like why are you only showing me horrible parts of, right. of America instead of anything good? So I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed it more than I thought I would, especially since I'm not necessarily the hugest fan of 70s Kirby, not to be blasphemous, but it, it was pretty solid, I thought. But yes, very long. 75 pages, I think. Yeah, you mentioned at the top about why you thought like it didn't stick in your brain uh, for the mm-hmm. first time. And I think part of that is because it does seem so random. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it, there isn't, it, there is not, I mean, and I, uh, I really like this story a lot. And I will admit, like a lot of Kirby, when I first read it, uh, I think I got this book when I was probably 12 or 13 at a comic store. I never saw it on the stands. Uh, but then I bought it later on when I was gobbling up all the treasuries. And I will admit, I didn't like it. I just was like, what is this? Mr. Buddha? What the hell is this guy talking uh-huh. about? And I just dismissed it. And I would reread it every so often when I would kind of go through all the treasuries. And it, it just never landed with me. And it is very random. It is just it's just bobbing from thing to thing. And it doesn't – there is no real through line exactly. But now that I'm older, I really appreciate that Jack Kirby has this weird push-me-pull-you feel to his where he wants to so be an entertainer. He just wants to entertain kids for through his comic books. He wants to give mm-hmm. them he wants to give them action scenes and fun stuff, but then he also because he was such an artiste, he can't help but slip stuff in on the margins that makes this so unique. Because again, you see this cover and it's a beautiful cover. It's got Cap with a shield and then you see these small vignettes behind him and it says a Jack Kirby king size spectacular. Mm-hmm. You think you think you know what you're going to get, like you just said, Michael. You think it's going to be, oh, it's just Cap going through history. That's fine. But no, there's so much more to it than that. And I mean, I thought it was very funny, not to jump around, but near the end where Cap goes to Hollywood and he finds himself in the middle of this of like this the Rockettes and they're like kicking their legs. It it's like that scene from the Captain America: The First Avenger. I mean, mm-hmm. it's literally that scene of Captain America finding himself in the middle of all this fake patriotism and being horrified by it. And I'm like. Did the writers get this? Because it feels like it's lifted right out of this comic book and put into the movie. Oh, and obviously this inspired Endgame, too. Right, right. yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff here. A celebration of America instead of the MCU. That's the only difference. Right, exactly. Random. Yeah. It does does a lot of stuff to kind of comment on different aspects of America. And that's one of the things I think he was trying to do whenever he was pulling out the different vignettes is, okay, um, let's try to get several different elements of history. Um, And at first there was a a bit of an emphasis on the 20th century. I thought, oh, this is all just going to be 20th century jazz. But there were elements from the 19th century and of course we have uh colonialism in the 17th century i'm sorry 18th century and um you know they they have a pretty good spread and a pretty good variety of different stuff that he gets involved with um i loved the uh the aftermath of that hollywood scene because it's all the dancing girls and the fake pictures and smile for the camera and he gets back to mr Booty. he's like oh my gosh what was that and he's like What's more American than making a movie? I mean, come on. <laughs> and, 
you have a point there, Mr. Buddha, I concede. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. I, I thought the scene where, where Cap goes back to visit Bucky uh, was actually sort of rather touching. I don't know how much that was done in the history of Marvel Comics, of like how many times some writer thought, well, let's let's transport Cap back in time so he can have another team up with his late partner. But there's something very sweet where Cap is he sees Bucky on the chair and he's like, I can't believe this is happening. Bucky is alive, and I know he can't be. And then the next panel, he wants to reach out and touch Bucky, and he's almost like he's afraid to because he doesn't believe it's real. I, I don't I don't know how how many times they went to that well, but I find it very sweet here uh, that he gets a chance to be with his old pal again and and also kicking Nazi ass. I don't think they had done that that many times, at least not yeah. by this point. Um, I don't I don't think so either. There are stories that are set during that time, but as far as getting Steve Rogers the chance to go back and see Bucky again, I could probably count on just a, a you know less than one hand how much that's happened. Yeah, I mean, and then of course when he disappears, he seems so distraught. He's like, "Bucky, where are right. you? Bucky, Bucky!" And then he goes back with Mr. Buddha, and he goes back from there. And so, I mean, it's I found that really very sweet to watch. Uh, what do we make of, of Mr. Buddha as a character? I mean, obviously we don't know what we actually do get some thought balloons. So we, we see what's inside of his head, but like, he's clearly just this plot device to get cap from thing to thing. I mean, does he, does he just register as somewhat sinister? He seems a little bit like that, but he's also, I don't know. He's trying to teach cap a lesson. It's, he's a little bit like uh, the watcher, which I know you guys just love over on make ours Marvel. <laughs> I I first encountered Mr. Buddha in a Cap Annual, which is published after this, I think, where he does the same idea, but he joins all the various people who've been Captain America together for an adventure, and then whoever wins gets to be the Cap or something. I can't even remember <laughs> that plot. Don't even ask me. But even then, he was a plot device, and he seems like a plot device here, too, but I mean, he totally is, but uh, I also found him kind of entertaining. I don't know. Like, it's a horrible name, and... Um, and it's kind of like, like low rent Buddhism, I suppose, but in terms of his philosophies and things like that, but he was kind of, it had had enjoyable dialogue. I thought he made me laugh a couple times. At first I was wondering if there's any reason why he couldn't just be Dr. Strange. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I think for a lot of it, he could just be, there's some cosmic reason you must travel through history, Captain America and just be Dr. Strange. Um, but I, I, they just—I guess they didn't want to go that route. The fact that he comes back, I was unaware of. I'm a little bit appalled, but you know, at the same time, whatever. Um, I remember Captain America 383 was an issue that came out around the time we were collecting. And that's the 50th anniversary of Cap, and he goes on a similar journey, but he goes through all of like the legends and myths of uh-huh. America, where he meets like Paul Bunyan and uh, Johnny John Appleseed. Johnny Appleseed, John Henry, just, you know, various, you know, characters of our history that are a bit more legendary than real. Um, Some of them are based in history, but, you know, and all. So I felt like this was kind of like that. Um, But Mr. Buddha comes back. Okay, that's that's a thing. He's like Cap's Cap's personal, like, mixes Pitalik. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's shown up twice. Although in his case, he's not just being a pestering imp. He like actually wants to, I don't know, help him or help him grow or something for some reason. I I think Mr. Buddha was upset about where America was in 1976. It was just coming out of Watergate and he wanted to teach the Sentinel of Liberty how to appreciate America again. Because, I mean, you know, Captain America is a tricky character, especially in Mm -hmm. 1976. Uh, I mean, of course, you could sort of go with it one way where you could do the kind of Steve Englehart 
kind of take where it's like let's just make him actively political and turn him into nomad and we'll have a president that shoots himself in the head and then you've got the Kirby version which is sort of almost like a man out of time no pun intended where he's just you know Kirby wants to do these certain kinds of Captain America stories that probably are not dissimilar from the ones he would have done in Tales from Suspense 10 years earlier or maybe five or six years earlier and, and isn't worried about the context of it. And here he's kind of having it. I mean, regarding Mr. Buddha, I love that in the opening splash page, we just, uh, you know, Jack Kirby just puts a lampshade on it where Cap goes, I have no idea why I was compelled to visit Mr. Buddha, but here I am. They're like, okay, that's mm-hmm. it. We don't need to know anymore. It's fine. He's just like, well, I wanted to see that invitation. Did I come to Avengers Mansion? How did that work out? You know? And there's a certain element of that that's pretty common to Kirby whenever he's doing all of his own stuff. He, he has a lot of ideas. And he doesn't always have consequence to his ideas. Yes. Um, over the last year or so, I've recently, re-read, uh, recently read for the first time all of his fourth world stuff. And so there's so many concepts that are brought into all of that, most of which are one and done and the issue's over and you never hear about it again. So I, it's, it's like to Kirby's mind, oh, you know what? Today, Captain America is going to, you know, go down a cosmic raceway to fight a bad guy who must, you know, drive for power or whatever. And then today he's going to travel through American history and celebrate, you know, it's just Kirby had an idea. So this is what he's doing today. Right. I'm going to introduce seven new characters in this book and you know, maybe right. we'll use them again. Maybe not. You're just like, whoa, you know, and he's just overwhelmed of how much you're being thrown at you. And like one of the like when I'm looking at this comic again, I, I talked about how I think Kirby is just desperately wants to be an entertainer. But then the artiste sort of slips in through the through the back door, kind of maybe not through the back door, but just he he has that 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 tension. And like I think about the scene where Cap ends up underwater. Where for a full page he's chased by a shark, and I'm thinking mm-hmm. that's because Jaws was out the year before. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the, you know, it's the there's no reason for Captain America to fight a shark other than I think Jack Kirby was just like, oh, sharks are popular. Let's have him fight a shark. Why? Why not? Why not work a shark in for a page in the middle of this story? It feels so ham-handed in some ways, but it also feels just like. Eh, it's also of a piece because this is craziness. This is just Kirby where things are coming at you at a million miles an hour and it's okay. We're going to move on to the next thing. But it just it, – when I see sharks show up in any 70s comic, I'm just like, oh, that's because you know people like Jaws. That's really what it was. But you get to see Cat fight a shark. Right. That's right. I mean, which, the inner you know, child like the in second me. time. Only the second time I've ever seen that. So that's pretty cool. Right. The, the um, inner kid in me is what, like, What awesome. time was that supposed to be? What time was that supposed to be? Do we know when he lands? The, when, oh, when he goes into the the shark? I That's, think. That, go ahead. I think it's it's somewhat in the future because okay. he finds the underwater base. Uh, mm-hmm. Under there, so I think that's in the future at a certain because he gets rescued by the scuba guys. Uh, they're they're in like the big scuba chair. I mean, not that this technology is above what's going on in the Marvel universe at the time, but right after that, he ends up on the moon, and they, that's the face of the future. So I think that's supposed to be somewhat of the future for for the for the first two or three times I read it, I thought there was like a robot shark because he looks metallic. He oh looks yeah. Kind of, I mean, I don't think he's supposed to be, but he kind of looks just the way it's drawn. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, again, this thing is just coming at you. There's so, but yeah, I mean, it's like the, the, the adult in me is like, Oh really? A shark. All right. But then the, 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 the inner five year old in me is like, awesome. Caps fighting a shark. That's awesome. I like the, I like the look of that. That's cool. I think maybe like, I don't know if it's a drawback, but I wish maybe they had put or, Put the year it's supposed to be. Sometimes they mention it 
a lot of, I don't know, not a lot of times, but sometimes they didn't. So then I was wondering if I'm supposed to know this as a real thing or is this just a made up thing uh, that we're celebrating here in America or, or what? Um, that might be a little drawback to the book, I thought. Most of them, there's like a character name or something yeah. given. I was just rereading that underwater scene. And if it weren't for the fact that this book is so grounded in actual history, I would say this was just present-day Marvel. Because you have underwater bases in present-day Marvel. Right, of course. You don't have underwater bases in actual 1976. Right. So it's hard to say which one they're trying to go for here. Right. But he says something like, you guys are doing good work, like he knows who they are. Oh, that's yeah, true, trying, yeah. So, trying to find a way to feed the human race by doing underwater research, that's very 1970s sci-fi. Yes. Maybe he's just commenting based on what they just told him. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, there was a few of those, like the mine one. I don't know if that's supposed to be a real uh, yeah, time. Yeah, 1922, the Kentucky gold mine. Okay, well, see, there you go. I didn't know my history on that one. So I was, like, trying to look it up on Wikipedia, and there's a bunch of mine collapses, so didn't really narrow it down. Uh, <laughs> well, that's a, that's a perfect example of something I wanted to ask about because, I mean, I don't have – I don't have kids. I know, John, mm-hmm. I know, John, I know you do. And, Michael, you do as well? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Like, this book presupposes that the average kid reader – has a certain amount of all of, of history already known. Uh, like you talk about, like he throw, I mean, obviously everybody knows who Ben Franklin is, but there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a lot of stuff in here that you have to kind of know your history a little bit to fully appreciate. And I wonder were kids of the, like, do you think that if you're, if any of your kids read this, would, would any of this land on them or would, would, has there been so much more history since then that the, a lot of this stuff is is sort of like they wouldn't know it. They would just be like, I don't know what anybody – I mean they'd know Ben Franklin, but maybe that's it. Well, my kids – this isn't on YouTube, so my kids aren't even going to acknowledge <laughs> its existence. But but uh, yeah, I actually think the same thing. I, I, was, I was reading this going, are, are we supposed to know – like some of them, they're, they're pretty explicit about what it is or where, they, where he is. And other times it's like, I don't know if I'm supposed to know what this is. Um, I guess not that many times, but yeah, I don't know if I was eight. Maybe that's why I didn't leave an impression because I just flipped through this having no idea what any of this was when I was younger. Um, I got the feeling like there was enough on the page that if you wanted to go to your library and ask for more information, they could direct you somewhere. I think that's that's one of the benefits of having named characters. Okay, I don't know who Geronimo was. But if I go to the library and ask for more on Geronimo, they can direct me. Same for John Dillinger or John L. Sullivan or whatever. Um, we don't know those people maybe as eight years old readers in 1976, but there's named information that we can look up, which is why the uh, the underwater scene is, is a little bit weird, like Michael said, because that one actually has no grounding. And here's another one. Like now you're a kid and you think all this is real. So you go to your library and embarrass yourself by saying, can I look up who J.B. Schmelzer is from the (laughs) golden age of Hollywood? And they all blink at you and go, what are you talking about? Because they made that up. You think they didn't, but they did. Right. I mean, one of the – It's kind of all over the place. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I I have noticed in my life, uh, like – and this this happens a lot at work because there's a lot of people that I work with that are a lot younger than me. And I don't mean this – I've got to, have to say this carefully because I don't want it to sound mean. But like I am aware of a lot of stuff that took place before I was born. 
You know, I just know stuff. I know stuff from the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, and probably that's because of my MASH fandom and that. that, that. But I know a lot of stuff, and yet I know a lot of 20-something-year-olds who know nothing before their time. Nothing. I mean, they don't – you could say – you could say Richard Nixon, and they would go, who's that? You know, and I I wonder, is it, you know, obviously it's a whole other topic, but like, is it because of just the way we educate kids and because there's so much more uh, stuff on the, in front of them now, like you just mentioned, Michael, there's YouTube. I mean, there's just so much more pulling away from your attention that I wonder if a book like this, obviously not necessarily the style done by Jack Kirby, but I wonder if a book like this would even, could even be done nowadays with all these historical references because they just – kids don't – I'm about – oh, my God. I feel like I hear myself saying kids these days. But I'm just wondering if kids these days have the grounding to understand stuff that took place even 50 years ago. Like if Cap went to the Korean War or World War II or even the Vietnam War, would, would a lot of kids even know what that is? I, I have no idea. But it, it, I feel like they maybe kind of wouldn't. And this book worked at a time but probably wouldn't work again if they did it a did it nowadays well i'll tell you i remember as a kid reading a lot of stuff in comics for the first time and finding out the concepts because of the comics and that would you know my favorite stories would plant background seeds in my mind that i would i could then later read about and learn about like oh yeah that's how that fits in there okay so um I don't know the answer to your question as far as a general trend. If you know kids these days, right? Yeah, if, if, <laughs> I hear if myself they would have, saying that. Yeah. Oh boy. But also, of course, I'm an educator, and so the idea in education is so much learning what you need to learn for the test mm. that I feel like there's a different value placed on knowledge, and that once you have taken your test, the knowledge is no longer important. Um, certainly, I see that manifesting in my own kids. It's like I'm not in school. I don't need to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, is just kind of a you know trend, right? Right. I can't even imagine a modern comic like this, right? Either. Yeah. Like, would this even sell? And who would they sell it to? Who would they market it to? You know? Yeah. I mean, I don't I, know. I would. It's love, all just dated, I guess. I would love to find out. I, I have no access to the sales figures of any of these treasuries. I would love to know how well this sold because this this feels sort of a little out of place in 1976. I mean, this the final page. Uh, well, not the final, the final page of the story where Cap is with all these different kids and there's it's kids of every stripe. And it really does feel like something kind of out of time, which I find very charming uh, as he's talking to all these kids. And I, I love I really love Jack Kirby's inclusiveness. I mean, there's the, mm-hmm. he talks about he's talking that these boys are like, well, I can do anything. And there's a girl's like and girls, too. And then he's at the very this double page spread. He's got these kids sitting on his lap and you got this one kid in the Ben Grimm sweatshirt. Who says, I don't even want to be a millionaire, but I'm going to find if I can write good stories and buy a farm with cows and chickens when I make money. Like, <laughs> like, wow, there's a kid who doesn't want to be a millionaire. Like, that, you don't see that nowadays. So it's like these kids are all from – they feel like from sort of like a previous era. And I feel like that's – I mean that's what Kirby is sort of – that's what he knew. You know, I mean obviously he was an older man by this point. His kids were grown. Uh, I don't know if there were really kids like this in 1976, but that's what he's imagining that they maybe could be or might have been at some point. Kirby, do we all agree that the newsboy guy is Kirby or oh, yeah. am I just reading into that? No, okay, I think clearly the newsboy kid is, is meant to be Jack Kirby. Um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 we haven't talked about the artwork side of this at all, and I want to talk about the artwork. What did you guys overthink of – I know that 
you know, Kirby is at times an acquired taste for some people. Um, what do you guys think of the, the artwork of this book? Ahead, I mean, it, it, it's, it's Kirby cap at its height. Um, <laughs> I, I personally prefer golden age Kirby uh, over silver and bronze age Kirby because of all the shortcuts he learns how to take. Um, but this is, this is about as Kirby as it comes when you're talking about that era. I, I am not the hugest fan. I am a fan of Kirby all the way, but, uh, 70s is probably my least favorite for him because, yeah, like John said, like he learns, hey, if I just make things blockier and more squiggly, I can get more pages done, right? <laughs> um, but that said, I think in at least in this, if maybe not always, and I've just never appreciated it, I think his layouts are amazing. I think his yeah. action's still amazing. Yep. I think it was interesting that the book starts out, like you mentioned there's three inkers. I have a feeling that the first couple stories are inked by either Romita or Barry Windsor Smith because they don't look Kirby. As Kirby-like, yeah. As eventually they look, which is probably when uh, Old Herb comes in and actually inks him correctly, um, instead of trying to style over him. Um, but yeah, it didn't bother me at all. I actually liked a lot of these these big pinup pages, and um, the scan I have unfortunately has uh, staple scans in it and stuff. So I'd actually like to maybe go buy the digital and make some wallpapers out of some of this stuff. It's good stuff. Yeah, some of these layouts I think are remarkable. When he goes, when he sees the um, when we cap lands in front of the Civil War like diorama, and it's mm-hmm. all the soldiers are in monochrome, black and blue. We'll have this page on the website firewaterpodcast.com, and it's Cap staring at them all. That is an astonishing uh, double page yeah. spread. I mean, that is just beautiful looking. That he's looking at this scene of utter carnage, but it's done in all these blues and blacks, and just the sky is blood red, and then you've got this weird design on the carpet, or I don't even know if that is supposed to be a design, or it's just a fanciful kind of filigree kind of thing, but that is, to me, startlingly beautiful. Uh, I absolutely love some of this stuff, and yeah, I mean, of course, he was you know, Mr. Action, there's the scene where he smashes two Nazis' face together, which is great. Um, I mean, the, the scene where he defends the newsboy kid when he gets him behind his shield and there's bullets flying. I love all that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I I was going to say, one of the things I like about this story, maybe not the story itself, but, or how everything's so random in terms of jumping, but I like seeing cap and how he reacts to those things that we don't normally see him in. Mm -hmm. Um, so like you said, suddenly he's in world war two freaking out about Bucky, but he also just says something like, I'm going to make things, I'm going to start change, making some changes around here. Like he's not, he's not star Trek in this. He's not like, Oh, I'm in the past. I better not do anything. No, I'm going to smash Hitler's face into his general and I'm going to win the war, you know? And then later he's like messing with a cab and he's like, I don't know where I am. And, but then he sees a guy like, punch a kid so hey i'm captain america you don't punch kids around me and he just rips him out of the taxi cab you know because again i don't care about affecting anything and like mr buddha is like you know trying to teach him stuff and he's like no i'm pretty straightforward you don't have anything to teach me and i'm not interested you know all he's just very captain america in this whole thing which i found amusing yeah oh i love that he goes after hitler he's like i'm going to inglorious bastards this thing just forget it you know here's my chance to kill hitler i'm going to take it uh, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I I love all. I mean, they said the uh, later on during the Civil War sequence where there's the double page spread where Cap's in the middle of the battle and there's this horse flying right over the camera. I mean, it's again it some of the stuff is just remarkable. And you mentioned the inking. Um, I don't. Barry Windsor Smith and Jack Kirby are a very strange combination. Uh-huh. Uh, you can see which clearly which pages are by BWS because there's all this 
uh, especially on on the scales of Cap's uniform and on the leaves and stuff. I don't know if it totally works, but I kind of like it as an experiment because it's two very very weird styles uh, coalescing into this uh, into these pages. I don't think we can um, leave off some of the discussion of the message behind this comic. You mentioned the inclusivity earlier. Part of the idea in this story is that he's visiting lots of different branches of American history, but also lots of different branches of American people. Right. So we have we definitely have, you know, it's bicentennial battles. So there are wars. We get the Colonial War. We get World War Two. We get World War One. We get. Um, but in the Civil War, he doesn't go to a war scene. He goes to a runaway slave that has made it across the border into the north, but has been pursued by bounty hunters. So now Captain America is in a situation where he's fighting off, you know, Caucasian Americans who legally have no right to be here and chasing this guy. But as they point out, they have the guns and that gives them the right, which is very, you know, very 19th century America. Um, And you have stuff like the mines, you know, and and the the dangers faced by people who are just, you know, working for a living in America. Um, You have the, um, the, the native American encounter, which is a little bit ham-fisted in the way it's written, but you can tell that Kirby is trying to make Geronimo and his people, they are the sympathetic parties here. The the Manifest Destiny American soldiers, they're the ones who are not acting correctly in this situation. Uh, and you get to the end of the story, and you have this great scene of Captain America with all these different kids talking about how in America, no matter where you're from, or who you are, you can be anything that you want to be. And I was sitting there reading going, wow, 2019 is a hellfire, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing, uh, but but yeah. <laughs> did, did anybody like hold their breath when they got to Chapter 3, or was it just me? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no, how is he going to tackle this? But it actually didn't turn out that bad. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that the Geronimo scene? Yeah, I was just like, I saw that splash page and thought, oh, man, this is this going to be like horribly dated dialogue talk? Um, but mostly he did a good job. You know, like you said, he fights off the uh, the invaders. I mean, there is a little bit of dialogue like, you know, we're all Americans or something like that, which, you know, hey, maybe they don't think that when they're being invaded and raped and pillaged, but whatever. <laughs> it's close enough. And uh, and then later with the abolitionist, I felt kind of the same way, like, oh, man, I hope they don't mess this up. And he I don't know. I think he did an OK job there, too. It could have been much worse. Well, one of the one of the appeals I think that Kirby has when I you go back and look at this stuff as sort of historical artifacts. And you guys have talked about this a little bit on the, your movie shows, the uh, the special episodes you've done about the movies, is that part of the reason I think that Chris Evans has worked so well as Captain America is he has been able to sell uh, in, in the role. Uh, he's been able to sell Steve Rogers as a guy that really does believe this stuff. He's, you know, he's, he's guileless. He really does believe in what he says and he's willing to look like a square. He's willing to seem a little dated. He's because that's what he believes in. And at a certain point, I think the, the, the initial uh, cynic in everybody kind of laughs at him a little. And they, even within the, 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 the reality of the movies, they laugh at him a little. They're like, okay, you know, la- you know when, he, when he chastises Tony for using lang- bad language and he's you know, oh my God. But I think Jack Kirby has that similar feel where he really did believe this stuff. 
You know, he wasn't it wasn't a pose he was putting on. He was really trying to access the best of the American spirit. And maybe in 1976, that was running on a lean mixture because we had just come out of Watergate and things were – the Vietnam War had just ended and things were really pretty terrible. And you would argue – I would argue things are pretty terrible now. Uh, but never the but I mean, look how much people really turned to Chris Evans as Captain America in these movies as I don't mean I don't mean to be corny about it, but almost like a bright light in the in a lot of darkness right now. And I feel like Kirby has that same appeal. This thing is so straightforward and so genuine that even though it's a little corny, you I don't know, I can't help but I read it and just put a smile on my face because it's like I know Kirby really meant this. You know? Like yeah. it's it's just genuine. Yeah, when you when you get to the end, like even if throughout this book you're maybe being a little cynical about certain things or certain you know certain ideas or whatever, by the time you get to the end, it's kind of like I want to believe what Cap believes. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like whether I can or not is another issue, but I want to believe it, and I'm glad that he believes it. And you know, yeah, he's my hero. So right, exactly. They did a good job with that. Exactly. Uh, and there are um, some pinups in this book. I didn't want to mention those. There's different eras of Captain America. There's a <laughs> colonial Captain America featuring uh, a Red Skull as a Hesse Nazi. Uh, that's, that's kind of an image to behold. Um, a root and toot and Western Captain America, and then a Captain America on the moon, and he's got an Apollo 11 shield and says Mighty Marvel was here. And then there's – and then I love this inside back cover, which is the Marvel Collector's Far Out bonus, and it's – the man known only to his dedicated fans, Steve Rogers, the Army reject who made comics history. He says, keep my little secret readers, but allow me to tell you that it's been my pleasure to serve you the best in action that Marvel can provide. And at the bottom, there's this collection of Marvel villains basically almost doing like a um, Sergio Aragones Mad Libs. Not Mad Libs, uh, kind of like on the margins thing where they're kind of Bad like vaccine. making – Yeah, they're like making fun of him and he's like – Red Skull's like, who's he? And there's a Nazi who, yeah, yeah, who this, that, nobody. And there's Patrick the Leaper and Hydra. We never allow that type to join Hydra. And it's almost like, it's just like not brand Eck all of a sudden. And, and this inside cover, it's very funny to me. I like all these pinups. Yeah, it's like kind of like the Buzz Lightyear, uh, you know, different action figure options. Right, yeah. <laughs> the 1776 version, the Old West version, and the Spaceman version. Yeah. Really I, I know the 1776 guy actually does make a comeback somewhere, but for the life of me, I can't think of where at this point. But they this do make a they do make a story out of it. Not not the William Naslin, but like okay, there's an actual like Steve Rogers ancestor from 1776, and this oh, is him. Of course, of course, because you know that's how they had to do that. You know, there's always a Batman before Batman and or, yeah, or right. a Cap before Cap or whatever. Right. right. Or Aquaman's father was the first Aquaman. Yeah. Anyway, oh, yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, all those stories. Oh boy. <laughs> Uh, I don't remember where they do that, but I know they do that. But this is the first inkling of that, I guess. Um, yeah, it's cool. And then on the uh, the back cover, it's Captain America shaking hands with uh, Uncle Sam. And he says, congratulations, Sam. You're as young and fit as ever. Happy 200th birthday. And if you want to, you can say that's the Uncle Sam from the DC Universe. And there's a DC Marvel crossover. But, of course, it's just regular old Uncle Sam. And like I said, it's... I, I can I can only imagine what kids in 1975, six thought of this, knowing what was going on in the world at the time. It, this thing must have again. It probably seemed pretty corny, but I, like I said, we're reading it now as I'm an old man. I, I, I it just sort of works for me. I, it, it definitely has some some deficits to it, but it, it, I just find the whole thing just sort of very charming. 
Well, maybe that's the uh, maybe that's the audience he was aiming for because you know Captain America goes back a long way in the publication history. So if you have people who are buying comics in 1976, you know they're not too old or I'm sorry, not too young to have been reading comics back in the day. So maybe as an older comics creator, Jack Kirby was trying to tap into some of that older comics reader you know, mindset, just be like, you know, this is the country that we as, you know, 50, 60, 70 year old men and women are a part of. Um, and, and I like to think that that's true. I like to think that there were readers out there who were like, yes, this is the America that I love. It's the America <laughs> that I've lived through. You know, even back whenever, you know, bigotry was an institutional way of life. This is still the America I love. You know, just, you know, mm-hmm. go along with it. Maybe from so. What I, from what I understand, cap sales slowly plummeted and this era was probably not his best either. So for all we know, this book didn't sell very well. Um, it wasn't until Engelhart came along that it like really boosted the book back up to popularity again. So I don't know. It'd be neat to see the sales figures for something like this. Yeah. I, I would know. love, I would I love know. to see that stuff, but yeah, that stuff is, uh, I never, I've never come across it, but boy, I would love to, cause I would just, I mean, these things had a higher price point, uh, they probably were. They definitely were aimed a little bit at collectors. I mean, you mentioned at the very beginning of the show, John, about how a lot of these treasuries were early trade paperback collections. Essentially, you know, they took collected stories and put them together, and that that appealed to a more collector kind of mentality. Uh, it, had I seen this on the stands, I don't know if I would have bought it. I Captain Merg is my favorite Marvel character, um, so I might have gotten it just because it was Cap, and he got he did appear in some other treasuries. But at the same time, maybe this one would have just it, it, the lack of uh, of other than the Red Skull making a brief appearance. Uh, you know, it's it's it is sort of funny how what I'm I'm sort of just thinking of it now, like how relatively uncommercial this idea is that this is what Cap this is the mission Cap goes on. I mean, when you really think about it, I would imagine if Marvel hired Jack Kirby to do a Treasury, an all new Captain America Treasury, you'd think you'd want to work in every villain. You think you'd want to make it a greatest hits, um, right? Red Skull and Baron Zemo and Backtrack the Leaper and whoever else. But he doesn't do any of that, other than the couple of pages with Red Skull. It's really a history lesson, and I could see that. I mean, Kirby had a lot of autonomy at this point, so maybe you just do what he wanted. But I would imagine that Stan Lee and some of the others are probably like, "Couldn't you? Couldn't you? Hey, can we fit? Can we get? Can we get Iron Man to make a cameo in here? We do something, you know?" But yeah. either that, or he was assigned to celebrate America's two hundredth birthday. And so this was always the mandate to have him traveling Maybe around so. doing that. Maybe but so. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, it's a really it's a really fun book. Uh, I enjoy it. Again, I like its sort of weirdness and that's this sort of one-off special, uh, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Of course, I already uh, – last year uh, for On Treasure Cast, I did uh, Superman Salutes the Bicentennial, which was DC's version of, uh, of honoring the 200th birthday. And that book is infamous in that it's Superman on the cover and then nothing but Tomahawk reprints on the inside. So, oh, no, really? Yeah. Um, now, while, while the Tomahawk reprints – I uh, have aged better than I remember them. When I was a kid, I was angry that I, you know, what? You know, I paid, you know, what is this? Um, certainly Marvel had a more exciting project in that it's 80 pages of brand new Jack Kirby, Captain America, as opposed to kind of musty, fusty old Tomahawk reprint. So, I mean, the Marvel really, Jeez. yeah, Marvel really went for the, the you know, the, 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 the home run here. Talk about false advertising. Yeah, pretty 
<laughs> well, you're because you, you know, I'm doing my Superman read through. I'm in like 1974. 76 is not that far away. You're talking about this book, and I'm like trying to rack my brain to see if I even remember cataloging it for my reading, and and I probably didn't because yeah. it doesn't have Superman in it. Yeah, he's on the cover in some intro pages, and he's basically spending a lot of time going. And here's Tomahawk talking about this, Bro. and then it's 20 pages of Tomahawk. So, oh no, yeah. that means you have to read it, John. There you go, John. He's in um, it. Um, <laughs> I think that counts. He's in uh, it. <laughs> Sorry, John. I, I might just... just read the Superman pages. And, and <laughs> oh, well, that, that'll, that'll go very quickly. So, again, the book is better than, than its reputation suggests. We kind of, like, reclaimed it a little in that episode. But, but yeah, it is infamous for being, super, you know, Superman's – it's not Superman salutes the Bicentennial. It's Tomahawk salutes the Bicentennial. But, you know, what are you going to do? So, uh, so yeah, this is Cap's Bicentennial Battles. Uh, that's it, It's a really sort of fun book. You can get it is in a trade collection. There is a, a trade paperback called Cap's Bicentennial Battles, and it features this and some other stories. So you can get it in a regular format, although I would argue – uh, if you can find this uh, in in the wild as a treasure, I would pick it up because it's really beautiful to see Jack Kirby artwork at this size. It's always very exciting. I mean, I'm just a sucker for the treasury format. Obviously, it's why I'm here. Uh, and so seeing Captain America kick Nazi ass uh, at, at a giant size at 10 by 13 is, is always going to be something I'm interested in. So, uh, so guys, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I have said to you privately and I've said publicly, I am a massive super fan of Make Ours Marvel. Your show came along at exactly the right moment where the movies really kind of reignited my love of the intricacies of the Marvel Universe. And you guys starting at the beginning and just moving forward bit by bit, it's going to take you many lifetimes to get through it all. Actually, you'll never really get through it all, obviously, but you'll have to hand it off to your children or whatever. But uh, I am a major, major fan of the show. I just absolutely love it. And so I'm very honored that you would stop by my show to talk about this. Well. Thanks for having us. I really appreciate the offer. I appreciate and, the uh, invite. Um, you know, we'll have to have you on a special, like you know, when they finally make that Submariner movie. <laughs> well, we, we know they star. we know they seeded it in Avengers Endgame. We know that, so maybe it's <laughs> not as far away as we think. Um, yeah, you never know. Tell, tell people where they can find your show. Oh, that's my job, so I'll just do it because I say it all the time. You can find our show at makearsmarvel.com. Uh, it'll have all the links there for our social and our RSS feeds and stuff. You could also just search our name in the app and it hopefully will come up. All right. Well, so we'll have that link in the show notes as well. Of course, again, I'm sure that anybody listening to this also listens to make ours Marvel, but just in case you don't go check it out, there's many, many episodes and it's, it's just an absolute blast. And it's one of the shows that I listen to the minute I get minute. There's a new one on Fridays. Uh, I listen to it. I drop what I'm listening to and I listen to it. So it's just a really fantastic show. So, uh, again, thanks, guys, so much for doing it. I really, really appreciate it. And, guy, everybody else, I want you to stay tuned. And we're going to play some podcast promos. And when I come back, we're going to do some listener feedback. It was 1938. The country continues its slow recovery from the Great Depression. While war clouds loom throughout Asia and German aggression builds in Europe, Americans seek comfort and distraction. It was a time when the most popular form of entertainment was radio. But a new form had been growing steadily and was set to explode. It was to become the golden age of the American comic book. My name is Chris. And my name is Mike. Please join us as we explore comics in the golden age between 1938 and 1955. All genres will be discussed, from superheroes to crime, horror, science fiction, humor, and western 
So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com. Hi, I'm John Wilson. And I'm Michael Kaiser. And we're the hosts of the podcast Make Ours Marvel. You know, here we are in 2018, 10 years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So, to celebrate, we're on our mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it. And now we're going to do it too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero issue. And, if I can convince Mike, we'll even do Sergeant Fury. And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever. <laughs> it's still going to take forever. But no, we're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour and, you know, maybe a little change. Every week, Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com. Or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until Avengers Infinity War gets a spin-off Warlock in the Infinity Watch TV show, make ours marvel. These bicentennial minutes have focused attention on all aspects of the birth of our nation, which established American freedom and kept its promise alive. The bicentennial year and the bicentennial minutes end tonight as our first resolution of the new year. Let us pledge to keep the spirit of 76 alive. Thank you and a happy new year to you all. And we're back with listener feedback. And before we get to the feedback left on the website, which is, of course, firewaterpodcast.com, we have a new iTunes review. Uh, this was left back in April. I'm sorry that I'm just getting to it now, uh, but it's five stars from Billy Dunleavy. And he says, love this show and can't wait to see new episodes drop. Treasure editions are gems from years gone by that are sorely missed. But thanks to Treasure Cast, they feel like new again. So thank you very much, Billy. I really do appreciate the iTunes reviews. Of course, as I mentioned in previous episodes, all the iTunes reviews help get the show noticed, especially five-star reviews. So I really do appreciate it. And I promise any new iTunes review will be read in full on the show. So thank you very much, uh, Billy Dunleavy. Uh, so now let's get to the feedback, as I said, which was left on the website, firewaterpodcast.com. And this was for episode 36 of the show, which was Superman versus Muhammad Ali with my pal Michael Cronenberg. First up is Eric, who says, uh, another fun, entertaining episode. The Spider-Man issue with the Leon Spinks gag was Amazing Spider-Man 186 by Marv Wolfman, Keith Pollard, and Mike Esposito. I'm pretty sure Marie Severin drew the Jeanette Kahn character, since Severin was Marvel's go-to artist whenever specific person's likeness or caricature was required. Yeah, I think that's probably a safe better. You can sort of tell that that's Marie Severin's work. But thank you for pointing that out, that that's the issue that it's from, because it's a, it's a great little gag, and I just didn't remember what the, what comic it was from, so that's really cool. Our pal Edo Boznar uh, leaves a comment. He says, uh, I've listened to so many comics podcasts that have covered this book that I'm beginning to feel like I've read it, even though I never have. I have to be honest, back in the day when I was about 9 to 10 years old and saw the house ads for this in DC Comics, I kind of rolled my eyes. 
I wasn't a fan of boxing, and my general impression of Ali was that he was some kind of boastful loudmouth. However, I later learned to respect Ali a great deal, and now I'm interested in reading this book. Someday, I hope. So thanks, guys, for another treatment of what has been, based on all the love for it among comics fans, an impactful book. By the way, interesting that you associate the Love and Spoonful's Summer in the City with that excellent opening splash page, which, again, I've been seeing posted umpteen times on various comics-related sites. Personally, I immediately think of Mungo Jerry's In the Summertime. Uh, that's another good pick, you know, but I, I feel like... Uh, the Summer in the City has that, that driving beat to it that, uh, to me, that's just what I hear in my head when I see Neil's work as opposed to In the Summertime, which has a, a more kind of slow, loping kind of feel to it. But but it's that's a perfectly fine uh, musical accompaniment as well. Uh, our pal Dr. Ange from the Comic Box Commentary blog says, Amazing episode. I also consider this a summer book, mostly because I only remember buying treasuries in the summer when we would go to the local Woolworths, which sold them. I still have mine, battered, dog-eared, and bent. As a kid, I knew nothing of boxing, but I knew the Ali name. I can recall being shocked that he beat Superman, because no one beat Superman comics back then. As I flipped through the book before listening, I also marveled at the opening street scene, Rob. For me, it was the theme of Chico and the man playing in my head. I can't thank you enough for posting the Cubert cover on the gallery page. I had never seen that. The crowd scene there is scary, hard-looking mugs cheering on the carnage. Uh, yeah, well, you're welcome, Anja. That, that was an essential piece of, uh, of Superman versus Muhammad Ali Arcana, and I was glad to include it in the, in the gallery. Of uh, A pal uh, from our network, of course, Chris Franklin, he says, I remember the ads for this as a very young kid in some of my earliest comics. Even then, I thought Ali's logo looked like a lot like the classic Amazing Spider-Man logo. I didn't get to read the book until I was in college. My boss at the comic shop I worked at had a copy, and he let me read it. He wouldn't sell it, though. It was just there to display because he loved it, and I could see why. I think this is definitely Adam's greatest comics work, and it's certainly the most influential treasury comic, even outside the genre. It's interesting that Michael's dad took him to see the Ali Foreman match. Ali was a controversial figure in my house. My dad wasn't a fan. He didn't like Ali's boastful nature and, honestly, his refusal to serve. Being a veteran himself and having a nephew crippled in the war no doubt colored his view of Ali, despite us, of course, being from his home state of Kentucky. In recent years, when Ali has come up, my dad's viewpoint has softened, and he respects him sticking to his beliefs about Vietnam, but he still doesn't like his cockiness. My dad is a bags of humility type of guy. Great show, fellas. Michael's a great guest, and I always enjoy his work for tomorrow's. Thank you so much, Chris. Uh, Abel M. Vada says... Uh, I've really been enjoying Treasury Cast, but this one was, ahem, the greatest. Of all the Superman comics, toys, and whatever else I had growing up, my mom even sewed me my own cape. This comic was my prized possession, my absolute favorite. As the two of you said, this really was Neil Adams at his best. I love Ali's stipulation that he discovered Superman's secret identity. Ali was a Superman fan. I bet he had his own cape, too. Back in the late 1980s, a Superman game showed up at my local arcade. It wasn't that good of a game, but it was colorful, and during the game's attract mode, when it's inviting you to spend your money on it, it would show you a striking image of an alien with a miniature Earth floating in his palm, directly ripped from, of all places, Superman vs. Muhammad Ali. Any game that uses Neil Adams' art is a game I'll gladly feed quarters to. That sounds really cool, Abel. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen that game. I spent a lot of time in arcades in the 80s, but uh, I never saw that. That sounds really cool. And yeah, I love that it uses a panel from this comic. That's awesome. What a great, great little piece of trivia. Thank you. Uh, Noah Tarnow says, Great job, gentlemen. You inspired me to finally read this comic for the first time. I don't get leafing through it at a friend's house when I was four years old. Despite never having read it before, I was intimately familiar with that cover, of course. I agree, it's awesome how they gave Ali a striking logo. Somehow, that's the one factor that most seems to give Ali the status of an honest-to-goodness superhero. There are a ton of reasons why it never would have happened, but can you imagine the awesomeness if Ali had joined the JLA at the time? 
Uh, the mind reels, Noah. It's, uh, the, the, that idea. JLA, JSA, Mom and Ali crossover. Uh, Captain Entropy, great name, says, uh, Robin Michael, thank you so much for doing a superb job of covering not only the greatest Treasury comic of all time, but one of the greatest comics in any format of all time. Michael Cronenberg knows boxing and comics. What a find, Rob. Well, yeah, Captain. That's why he's always on my shows talking about movies and boxing, Bob Dylan and boxing, or comics and boxing. It's a, there's, there's always some sort of crossover. Anyway, uh, he, he continues, You two covered so many things that made it great, but I will add two more. First, the characterization was spot on for every character, from relentless reporter but loving girlfriend Lois Lane, to the Mr. Action version of Jimmy, always my favorite, to ex-boxer Perry White forcefully defending Superman, to the two great fighters themselves. Many of my favorite heroes are also surrounded by heroes in their supporting cast, and Superman is a great example. Second, the plot takes you from the street to the stars and back again, and it makes it all seem natural. It may have helped that Ali was, through it all, completely unfazed. Uh, he says also, great job on the gallery page selections, though you should have included the page where Superman rips off his Bundini mask to reveal his white, black, and blue face. I had never heard of, but had never seen the striking Cupid cover in any medium, much less in person, while trying to pass an interview like Rob. And I had never even heard of the Spider-Man gag panels, but now I'm richer for having seen them all. The artist made Jeanette Kahn look amazing, so I guess it was all in good fun. Yeah, clearly it was. Uh, I love that gag. And yeah, I was really happy to kind of present a wider picture of this treasury on the gallery site. I mean, th- as we talked about, this this issue has had a huge impact even outside of comics. And so I, I wanted to kind of get at that a little bit on the show and in the gallery. So I'm glad that everybody appreciated the uh, multiple images that I uh, posted there. Uh, our pal from the network, Zoom Yukinori, says, a MASH episode involving a boxing match. I recommend the 17th episode of Season 5, entitled End Run. That does have a boxing match in it, but it's a pretty pathetic one because it's involving Klinger and Zale. Uh, if I had thought about it, I might have had Michael on for Season 1 when we did Requiem for a Lightweight because uh, that was a, a whole boxing episode, but uh, I didn't think of it at the time. But who knows? Maybe if uh, Michael's a good sport, and he is, uh, he'll be willing to come back to talk about End Run, even though it's barely about boxing. Uh, Ward Hill Terry comments, he says, I was surprised at how much I liked this story. And Ali. Muhammad Ali was not much more than a name to me. I wasn't a follower of boxing. I was unaware of his history. I knew the song, though, and I was so hoping he would play it, Rob. And I may have heard the George Carlin bit, but probably imitated by a friend. This story made me interested in Ali and gave me insight into boxing as a sport. Some things I love about this. One, the cover. In 1978, there were some celebrities that I hadn't heard of, and I never saw the Beatles. Thanks, Michael. Captain Entropy, as I understand it. The figure in front was supposed to be Telly Savalas, but rights were withdrawn or not completed, so Neil removed the lollipop from his fingers and called him Luthor. That's why his hand is in that position. Two, the cameo of Adam Strange in Atlanta. Three, Superman disguises Bundini Brown. I love this on many levels. It shows Superman is a smart tactician. It shows Superman willing to lose a fight to win the war. It shows Superman willing to sacrifice his reputation and his face. It shows Superman being smart. Of course, the disguise works because despite subtle differences in hue, all humans look alike to the scrub. Four, Superman destroying the space armada. Five, the guy in the double page splash piece looking back at the girl who just walked by him. You guys did a great job on a great comic. Thank you, Ward. I appreciate all those uh, comments. And yeah, I couldn't resist playing that Muhammad Ali song at the end. It's just, just too perfect. And finally, Robert Markham says, fitting that the greatest boxer of all time was born on a night that's all right for fighting. According to the Elton John song, that was a Saturday. <laughs> thank you very much, Robert. So thanks everybody for the comments. I really appreciate it. It was great reading everybody's 
uh, recollections of this comic, uh, whether you had it as a kid or later on as an adult like Chris and stuff like that. So, again, thanks, everybody. I love reading the feedback for these Treasury Cast episodes, including them in the show. So so thanks, everybody, for the comments. And then finally, I have to thank everybody who retweeted uh, the show on uh, Twitter when I announced the show on a Saturday. I really appreciate the retweets because it helps get every new episode noticed. So big thanks to Supermates Pod, Just the Trek, Irving Forbush 2, Coffee and Comics Blog, Roger Preeb, Billy Delicious, Scott Slangward, Classic JLA, Once Upon a Geek, Firestorm Fan, Martin Gray, David Gallagher, Lee Asif, BTB Blog, El Jacone, Rolled Spine, Rad Adventures, Oswald Liz, Black Balkan 69, Chris Agne, Russell Rosen K1, The Kirby Cast, Dan Schwent, Steve4132, and M.W. Cronenberg. So, again, big thanks to Michael Cronenberg for coming by and doing that episode with me. It was super fun. And, of course, big thanks to Michael Kaiser and John Wilson from the Make Ours Marvel podcast that stopped by to talk about the Caps Bicentennial Battles book. That was uh, much like the Superman vs. Muhammad Ali episode. Uh, I had been planning this uh, Caps Bicentennial Battles one for over a year and I told the guys I really want to do it in July, and even though I think I came up with the idea like in August, uh, and they were willing, they were willing to wait like a whole year to do the show with me, and it was a lot of fun. As I mentioned in that segment, I am a mega fan of Make Ours Marvel. I just that's a great show. So if you're not listening to it, uh, you should be. But I can't imagine anyone who listens to the show doesn't listen to Make Ours Marvel because it's just a terrific, terrific podcast. So uh, I guess that is going to do it for this uh, special uh, July Fourth uh, Independence Day episode of Treasure Cast. Thanks everybody listening. We'll see you next month. And until then, go big or go home. When Captain America throws his mighty shield, all those who chose to oppose his shield must yield. If he's led to a fight and a duel,